Good morning and welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, Texas. My name is Susan Yarbrough and I am the very lucky student intern uh, in this uh, dynamic and activist congregation. First Unitarian Universalist Church is a church of deeds, not creeds, and we're part of a liberal religious tradition that encourages the application of, faith, of reason to faith and welcomes people from all theistic and non-theistic traditions, including, but not limited to, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, neo-paganism, atheism, and agnosticism. I'd like to extend an especially warm welcome to those of you who are visiting for the first time. Part of our tradition holds that there is a divine spark in everyone. So in keeping with that tradition, please take a moment to turn to those around you and greet their spark with the warmth of your own spark. The flaming chalice is a symbol of our faith and we light at the beginning of every worship service. As Peter and Linda lead us, let's say together the words printed in your bulletin. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship today comprises a few brief selections from Dr. Martin Luther King's 1963, I Have a Dream speech. Please hear these words from a prophetic source as Peter and Linda deliver them. We have come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to, to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. No, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Here ends the first reading from a prophetic source. Every Unitarian Universalist Church goes through a lengthy process of developing its own mission statement. We've written ours on the upper wall to your left, and we say it together every Sunday to remind each other of our communal purpose. Let's do that now as Peter and Linda lead us. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. In her very fine essay, The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action, the late black poet and activist Audre Lorde said this, When we speak, 
We are afraid our words will not be heard or welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it's better to speak. And I have come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood. I know that beyond any other effect, the speaking profits me, and that I have betrayed myself with small silences while I planned someday to speak or waited for someone else's words. My silences have not protected me, and your silence will not protect you. Here ends the reading from a second prophetic source. Every week in our service, we have a time of quietness together, and each of us enters it into his or her or their own way. For me, it's with prayer, and for others, it's through meditative stillness or simply following their breath to a place of calmness. After today's prayer, you're invited to light candles of joy, sorrow, hope, memory, concern, or celebration. Simple directions that will accommodate everyone easily are found in italics in your order of service. Please enter into this time of quietness as I offer a prayer. God of many names, whose highest name and form is human love, thank you for all the people gathered here today. Thank you for the thoughts and emotions that arise in us and for the ability to reason and to discern. We are troubled and depressed by the frightening words and perilous events around us and especially by a new president who has emboldened racial bigotry, degraded women, threatened immigrants, and scorned the poor. In the midst of all this, help us find places of calm strength, both within and outside of ourselves. Teach us how to make the increase in our courage a daily spiritual practice. Open our arms to those who want and need our embrace. Forgive us our silences, for they have been trespasses against humanity. And strengthen us to do justice with our language and our speech. Amen. I want to start with a question today, and it's this. What did you do to celebrate Martin Luther King Day this past Monday? Here's what I did. Three loads of laundry. (laughs) Just as I have for the past 31 years, ever since Martin Luther King Jr. Day was first celebrated in January of 1986. All of my 30 years in the legal profession were spent in public sector law, and there were many benefits to it, such as a steady paycheck by direct deposit every two weeks and good health care insurance. But one of the best perks was the 10 federal holidays I received every year. New Year's Day and Martin Luther King Day in January, followed through the year by President's Day in February, Memorial Day, 
Independence Day, Labor Day, Columbus Day, Veterans Day, Thanksgiving Day, and Christmas. I did something distinctly festive, such as shooting off fireworks, attending a parade, going on a picnic, eating out with friends. On each of those days, except Martin Luther King Day, when I busied myself with laundry. In other words, I did something fun or sociable or celebratory on all the white holidays and laundry on the black one. Last Monday was a little different, however, for instead of just doing laundry, I sat down while the clothes were drying and read one of Dr. King's lesser known works entitled Don't Sleep Through the Revolution which he gave as the Ware Lecture at the 1966 Unitarian Universalist General Assembly in Florida. After that, I spent several hours finishing this sermon and reflecting on how those of us who are white consciously and unconsciously use language in order to further our own privileged social location and status, and perhaps even worse, how we, or at least I, fail to speak when racism should be interrupted, and how my silence operates as consent. In the next few minutes, I'm going to describe for you three personal incidents from this past year that all served to stop me in my spiritual and theological tracks. The first occurred several months ago at a little food shop in Tarrytown, which is about two miles north of where I live on Lake Austin Boulevard. I go there several times a week around 1.30 in the afternoon, have a late lunch of soup and a cookie and a diet Dr. Pepper, don't tell my grandmother, and usually work a crossword puzzle. The shop has one long table down the middle, and as I sat down on this particular occasion, there was an elderly couple in their 80s across from me who were talking about what movie they wanted to go to that afternoon. I grew up not being allowed to say what is now referred to as the N-word, so I was shocked to hear them revert to a, a a childhood rhyme or a childish rhyme to decide on their movie du jour. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch an N-word by the toe. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. I felt my stomach turn over, so I put down my soup spoon and said, absolutely nothing. I mean, I'm a nice girl. I have good manners. I don't correct my elders. I believe in live and let live. This is America and we have free speech, blah, 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 and on and on with every slick rationalization for my silence that I could come up with. The older couple left and for months I've replayed that scene in my head, wondering what could I have said that would have meant anything? And it finally occurred to me that what was called for was not a correction of them, but a voicing of my own deep pain. What I wanted to say was, it hurts my heart to hear that word spoken by us white people. But in fact, I said nothing. And by doing so, I gave my consent to what had been said by them. The second incident occurred shortly after the Black Lives Matter banner was hung in our courtyard here. At coffee hour, someone came up to me and said, what's with the banner? All lives matter, 
and I don't see why we have to have that thing hanging up in the trees. I just don't get Black Lives Matter at all. And that whole movement would have a lot more credibility if their leaders didn't dress like jive turkeys. I, f I felt like a deer in the headlights, and I could feel my throat closing up and my brain shutting down with rubbish like, oh, you're only the rookie student minister, and you're not even a member of this church, and this person has been a member for a long time and gives generously, and I'll be in trouble if I push back against their opinion, and I don't know enough about Black Lives Matter to engage in a meaningful discussion with this person, and blah, 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 and on and on with my own mental tapes. But I knew I couldn't and shouldn't remain silent, so I sank into my familiar default setting, an, intellectu an intellectualized legal approach where I started rambling about due process and equal protection and the disparate impact of laws and police tactics and courtroom procedures and sentencing outcomes and parole decisions on black people and how I really didn't think that what people wore mattered. I felt as if I was standing outside of my own skin and watching myself be a talking head when what I really needed to do was forcefully say, listen to me, what we're talking about is black bodies on the ground, dead, lost to their families and loved ones forever, simply because of walking while black, or driving while black, or living while black. Their lives mattered, all of them. But I didn't do that. And my verbal response to what the other person had said served only to make racism into a clever and civilized little debate about constitutional ideal, ideals and clothing choices rather than an impassioned plea to see the systemic and ongoing destruction of people, in, uh, people of color in this country for hundreds of years. In this situation, instead of saying nothing, I spoke but only from my head and not from my heart. Like the food shop scenario, I've replayed this one hundreds of times in my imagination. And what I wish I had said was, I disagree completely with you. Do you have time for lunch this week so we can talk about it more? I didn't. But as I thought more and more about how I and other educated, liberal, middle-class white people talk about racism, and about how language really is the primary expression of any culture. I deliberately launched myself into a third scenario that had some surprising results, and it was this. I decided to conduct an informal poll of about 25 liberal white middle-class people like me using the question, given the fact that we all pretty much agree about what racism is and how to define it, what kind of evaluative language would you use to describe racism? Here's a sampling of the results. Racism is so wrong. It's really bad. It's morally reprehensible. It's profoundly disturbing. It's illegal. It's a blight upon society. It's something that bugs me a lot. It's disgraceful. It's just not right. It's the province of the uneducated. It's something we need to work on. It's disgusting. It's something I've given up on. It's a national embarrassment. 
It's something I'm really tired of talking about. It's like cultural acne. It's an affront to democracy. It's been around for centuries and it's not going away. It's horrible. It's a huge, insoluble problem. It's gross. It's ugly. It's a crying shame. And for a finale, the most ironic appraisal of all, it's appalling. A word whose etymology means making something pale or causing it to whiten. As I read these over aloud to myself and, and, and now to you, I cringe when I imagine what a person of color would think and feel upon hearing all of this hand-wringing and tut-tutting. And I hope we can begin to question why we as white people use these circumlocutions, these literally whitewashed, intellectualized, and disembodied terms when we talk about racism. And I think that what astonished me most was how not one person I polled, whether a member of a mainline denomination or a Unitarian Universalist or a religiously unaffiliated individual, how not one of them used the word sin or evil to characterize racism, although probably most of them and us would use the word evil to describe the Holocaust. This made me wonder whether using the word evil to describe the Holocaust, but not to describe racism, is related to the fact that most of the victims of the Nazi regime were white people. But back to sin and evil, which are not very useful for Unitarian Universalists as intellectual or theological constructs. Our denomination, however, is completely committed to the dismantling of racism, and it's therefore probably not a bad idea to consider and articulate a theological basis for this kind of social justice work over and beyond the humanism we all share. In fact, it's helped me enormously to think of the dismantling of racism as a theological process and event, and even as an act of faith formation. So instead of using any of those terms that came up in my poll, and I've used many of them myself, here's how a theology of anti-racism is beginning to take shape in my own heart and mind. Silence in the face of racism is a radical contradiction of our Unitarian Universalist values, principles, and sources. As black theologian James Cone once told a gathering of UU ministers, Speaking to racism when it occurs, and especially when it occurs in our presence, is crucial to our integrity as a people whose first principle is the inherent worth and dignity of every person, even though part of our social construction as nice middle-class white people is to be silent. We are required by the language and the meaning of our principles to investigate racism as seriously as we investigate science and reason, and to confront our culture with open eyes and to dare to say what we see, and not just say it to each other. Olympia Brown, the first uni universalist woman to graduate from a theological school and be ordained as a full-time minister, urged us to stand by this faith that's the opposite of being a bystander. And Reverend Rebecca Parker has re repeatedly reminded us 
that when our communities keep faith with our principles, we gather the knowledge and strength to disrupt injustice, both publicly and privately. In 1968, just as I was finishing an undergraduate degree whose high point was a course in Christian ethics taught by a soft-spoken, radical-thinking professor, contemporary theologian Harvey Cox published a new book entitled On Not Leaving It to the Snake. As you might imagine, a book that argued for taking responsibility for one's fate and moving toward a future whose shape we can determine was not available in the Baylor University bookstore, where God and Satan were still duking it out by day and by night for top honors and who could control human beings more effectively. But someone in the small group of Vietnam War protesters in Waco, Texas, managed to get a copy of Cox's book and started passing it around. It became a life changer for me, For not only did it convince me that I had human agency, but it also contained the phrase, not to decide is to decide. That phrase has stayed with me because it seems so true. And as I thought about how much I love language and how it really is the primary expression of a culture, it became clear to me that not to speak is to speak that choosing to be silent in the face of racism is an insidious part of white privilege and a profound breach of the human covenant, that moral cowardice in the face of moral injury is at least as evil as the injury itself, that racism is far more than a blot on the American escutcheon, but is instead an open, aching wound that we are called upon to bind up. A longtime friend of mine is Jan Wilson, whom I first met about 50 years ago when she got engaged to someone I knew at Baylor. We were at a party, and as I warily observed her perky demeanor, I wasn't at all sure that I wanted to get to know her. But no one had ever called me perky. But when we found ourselves together in the kitchen, putting together more trays of cheese and crackers, we began a conversation that quickly became serious. And I told her about something I'd done for which I had felt guilty. Well, she said, sometimes you feel guilty because you are guilty. (laughs) That was another truth that has stuck with me. But as most of us grow older, we realize that guilt is not a very useful emotion, except insofar as it prompts us to raise our own consciousness and increase our self-awareness so that we'll become self-correcting, morally improved, and more spiritually fit. Like many of you, I grew up with Jim Crow, and I don't feel guilty at all about things I did as an unknowing child to obey laws that prohibited black people from using the same restrooms, drinking fountains, restaurants, swimming pools, schools, and movie theaters I did. And as we grew up, we didn't use racial epithets, and we participated in civil rights demonstrations, And we did and said many things that showed our sincere opposition to racist laws and practices. But we've also refrained from doing and saying some things that we know we should have done and said. 
And for this, some of us feel rightly guilty, just as I did several months ago in a food shop in Austin, Texas. The motto of the Black Lives Matter movement is stay woke. But in order to stay woke, we have to get woke. And I think that watching our language and our lack of language is one of the best places to set the alarm clock. It's all well and good that we mind our P's and Q's and that we don't use racial slurs or tell racist jokes. But most of us have old tapes playing in our heads. Most of us cannot honestly say, some of my best friends are people of color. Most of us don't look beyond clothing when judging the credibility of leaders. Most of us don't want, don't want to lose friends over politics or theology. And most of us don't speak when we should about matters of race. In the only surviving recording of her voice, Virginia Woolf states that words are events. They do things. They change things. And in 2001, upon receiving the prestigious Jerusalem Prize for the Freedom of the Individual in Society, American intellectual and social critic Susan Sontag gave an astounding acceptance speech entitled The Conscience of Words, arguing that in our fretting about what words to say, the words we do not say create rooms of mental intentions in our psyches that become abandoned, boarded up, and close down spaces that we can no longer inhabit. But words that are used extend our sense of what a human life can be, and they extend our own sympathies to the selves and dreams and pain of others. I believe so strongly that our hearts are in the right place, but that our tongues are often tied. One of the things the seminary encourages us to do is to develop a one-sentence elevator speech to use whenever someone asks, what's Unitarian Universalism? I've seen some wonderfully creative 20-word answers to that, and I would invite encourage, and encourage all of us to work not only on that one, but also to develop a quick response when the language of racism is used in our presence. Thanks to an incident at a Terrytown food shop, Mine will be, it hurts my heart to hear us white people use those words. Now, more than ever, as we look for ways not only to uproot and dismantle racism against all people of color, but also to prevent its spread during the rise of white nationalism, it's imperative, I think, that I and we collect our thoughts and feelings render them into articulate expressions of inclusion and equality, and open our mouths in resistance and dissent. As I've learned with great pain, I can never speak truth to power if I can't bring myself to speak it in a small food shop in Austin, Texas. My silence will not protect me from seeing the destruction of people of color are from hearing the call to lift up their lives. And our collective silence will not protect anyone but tyrants and demagogues. May we find the words we need to say, and may we speak them with force, with conviction, and with love. Amen.
Please join Peter and Linda as they lead us in the words with which we extinguish the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Now please join Linda and me as we offer words of benediction. And now may the grace of the Spirit continue to bless this truth-seeking congregation. May our lives be expressions of courage and risk. And may we find words in our heads, our hearts, and our mouths as we gather strength to speak truth to power. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.